Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. A um, couple of technical glitches today, so we're doing this uh, the traditional Zoom way. I hope you can see me. I, I know that you can hear me because I already got a text from Angela, who's always trying to make sure that we we're technically in a good place. And in fact, she just texted me says I can hear you. So thank you, Angie. I appreciate it. Well, welcome to our Grand Rounds. And today we have uh, an outstanding speaker, uh, Dr. Jim Moore invited, a uh, former trainee of Dr. Moore, and I think you will enjoy his presentation on probiotics. Um, he's a national international authority. But before we start that, I want to uh, congratulate uh, Dr. Jim Moore. Uh, Jim is, uh, is the head of our division of neonatology. Uh, he's also heavily involved in our strategic planning and growing through Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, and if you let him go, he'll go all the way to Texas, frankly. So we just trying to take over the country, which I, and I think he could potentially do that. That's the way he is. Uh, we, we learned uh, yesterday, and, and I, apologize, I apologize with my CEO, uh, Mr. Dr. J, Dr. Uh, Jim Smerling, because I'm going to get ahead of him on this announcement. Uh, maybe I'll get into trouble, but that's okay. And uh, we learned yesterday that uh, uh, Jim is, is going to be a new endowed chair professor. Uh, he, uh, uh, he has been working very closely with uh, an outstanding individual who uh, has been a strong supporter of Connecticut Children's for many, many years. And his name is Ross Meyer. And uh, Mr. Meyer has been generally supporting our NICU since 1976 when it was based at Newington Children's Hospital. But his connection goes back even further than that. Uh, when he graduated from college in 1970, he was drafted into the Army Reserve, where, where part of his assignment was visiting Newington Children's Hospital twice each month. He got to know the children and the staff there, and it left a deep impression on him, an impression that was deepened even more through personal tragedy. Uh, Mr. Meyer's first child, Spencer David, died in the NICU eight days after he was born with severe complications. Uh, uh, Ross recalls that he and his son communicated on the seventh day, uh, and when he rolled over, he grabbed his pinky. That touch was his way of telling me, according to Mr. Meyer, telling me uh, to turn the strategy into hope for other babies to live normal lives. And uh, uh, Jim has connected very deeply with, with Mr. Meyer uh, and Mr. Meyer has shared his passion to making sure that we take care of the babies, and he has been a generous donor for many, many years. Um, at this point, you know, that has translated into a, a million-dollar endowed chair uh, in recognition of, of Jim Moore's outstanding work in, in our NICU. Um, you know, we recruited, or I recruited Jim uh, over five years ago. Uh, I knew at the time he was going to be really excellent, terrific. I didn't quite think, you know, I, I don't think I even had the foresight to see how wonderful Jim has been for Connecticut Children's for neonatology in general. So, uh, Jim, congratulations. Uh, you, it's such a well-deserved recognition for you and for the people you represent, the NICU that you represent, all the staff members and the faculty who do an outstanding job. I'm so pleased that uh, now I know you're going to be here at least for the next 20 years, so I don't have to worry about, you know, getting worried that you're going to leave and go somewhere else. So you're here with us for a long time. I'm going to uh, share the, the the microphone and the video now with with Jim, so he can introduce uh, Dr. Patel. Jim. Thank you, Juan. I appreciate that very much. It's my pleasure today to introduce uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Ravi Patel. Ravi is an associate professor of pediatrics at Emory University and at uh, Children's uh, Healthcare of Atlanta. He also uh, wears a couple other hats, including director of quality for the division of neonatology, as well as director of clinical research. 
he had uh, done his residency at NYU, and then we had the uh, pleasure of actually having him come to Emory to do his uh, fellowship, uh, and uh, at which point uh, I knew he was going to be a superstar. He's actually remained as faculty and uh, is now one of the principals for the NICHD neonatal network and is involved on multiple of the research committees. He's also was elected to the executive committee for the AAP for the neonatal perinatal medicine section. And he's also been both a principal speaker as well as a member of the International Necrotizing Enterocolitis Society. He is multi-NIH funded investigator and uh, I could go on and on, but I think what we really wanna do is hear from him. And it is my pleasure to introduce my friend, Dr. Ravi Patel. Thank you so much, Jim. It's really an honor to uh, to get to present at Connecticut Children's and and really to be invited by Jim, who is responsible for recruiting me down here to Emory. And, and he kind of brought me from the Northeast down to the South. And I think he went in reverse direction, but I'm really delighted to hear about um, the, the honors that Jim's receiving, which are well-deserved. So congratulations. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about probiotics for preterm infants and, and really share some of the evidence in terms of how we should think about whether this should be part of routine care for preterm infants and, and really talk about the spectrum of evidence. I, I do want to start by some disclosures. I serve on the data monitoring committee of a trial that's currently ongoing, investigating a, a probiotic product by infant bacterial therapeutics and preterm research, as well as grant funding. And finally, at, at the current time, probiotics are not approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the prevention of any neonatal diseases, including necrotizing or colitis. And in this presentation, I'm not endorsing any specific products. So I have three major objectives for today. One is to review the risk factors for necrotizing or colitis, which is the disease most well studied in terms of the use of probiotics in preterm infants. And then share some of the evidence from these studies and finally highlight some of the data on the various probiotic strains and products and, and some of the potential um, concerns regarding quality. So necrotizing enterocolitis is really quite a devastating disease in preterm infants. Often it strikes without warning and it's characterized by an acute onset of intestinal inflammation, typically occurs a few weeks into the infant's postnatal course, often when they've kind of become a little bit more stable from the early respiratory disease and they're doing relatively well. Their parents have taken a sigh of relief that you know, the kind of day-to-day -day acuity of the first few days of life have subsided. And then the infants present with abdominal distension, feeding intolerance, sometimes bloody stools, and it really happens very acutely. And then they can go on to progress and to develop really quite severe systemic illness. And on the left is an infant who's about to undergo surgery, which occurs in about 20 to 30% of these infants to remove diseased bowel that's, that becomes necrotic as inflammation progresses. And you can appreciate abdominal wall erythema on that infant. And if, if infants undergo surgery, the mortality rate is about, a, about 50%. So really a very high um, fatality rate for those infants with severe disease. And on the right is the characteristic findings of necrotized enterocolitis, which is pneumatosis of the bowel. And you can see that outline of the bowel. Um, and, and this is characterized by gas producing bacteria in the lumen of the bowel and, and goes along with inflammation and loss of bowel integrity. This is a study we did in the NICHD neonatal research network looking at causes of death in extremely preterm infants, those infants that are between 22 and 20 weeks gestation. 
What this highlights is that the, the major cause of death between two weeks and two months of age in, in these extremely preterm infants is necrotizing anacolitis, the most common single reason these infants are likely to die. And when they add on top of that infection, it accounts for over half of all deaths in the second month of life. This is particularly challenging as we see that infants who are surviving better these first hours and days of birth, particularly uh, where deaths due to respiratory causes predominate, we're seeing the increase in the proportion of babies that then are now surviving on to be able to go at risk for neck. And this also highlights the importance of strategies to prevent both necrotizing enterocolitis and infection. So what does neck occur and what are the risk factors for neck? And, and importantly, neck is a multifactorial disease. And this is a, a rather high level view of, of what I consider four major risk factors for necrotizing enterocolitis. And these are supported by a number of, of studies. The, the most important is non-human milk feeding. Breast milk feeding, and, and when breast milk is, mother's own milk is not available, donor milk feeding has been shown to reduce the risks of necrotizing enterocolitis. It's probably the most important strategy we have to reduce the risks of this disease. The second is inconsistent feeding, where standardized feeding regimens and the implementation of a standardized feeding guideline has been associated with about an 80% reduction in the risk of neck. And then dysbiosis, which I'll touch on in, in, um, in just a second. And then finally, a role of, of abnormal intestinal oxygenation. And this is supported by studies showing if you target lower oxygen saturation parameters in preterm infants, they end up with a higher risk of neck. And there's some concern about severe anemia leading to an increased risk of neck. But for this, I'm gonna highlight dysbiosis, which I think is an area that we've really come to understand the last decade or so more in terms of the role of, of not only necrotizer enocolitis, but many neonatal and, and, um, and pediatric diseases. And as many of you know, we're more bacterial cells than human cells. There's debate about how much more, whether it's 1.3 times more bacterial cells in our body or 10 times more than human cells, but, but really we, we are a host for, for these bacteria. And I think even the lay public has started to appreciate this. This is a story in the New York Times a couple of years ago that highlighted the importance of infants' exposure to microorganisms. So I think even the, the lay public is appreciating the importance of, of bacteria and, and beneficial bacteria in, in the guts and, and the important implications they have for health and disease. And part of that understanding really has, has taken off from the advent of non-culture-based techniques that really allow us to characterize in better detail and more granularity, the types of microbes that live in our body um, through, through 16S metagenomic sequencing, we really have a much fuller understanding of the types of bacteria that reside within us and how they differ in various health states. And you can appreciate this is a, you know, from really beginning in, in 2000 and, and particularly in 2010, really an exponential rise on publications in the microbiome. And, and that's really shaped our understanding of, of how this these diseases occur. And one of the seminal studies in our field in terms of how dysbiosis influences the risk of neck was this study that was done by Barbara Warner and Phil Tara out of Washington University in St. Louis, where they took at three centers infants who um, were very preterm and they followed them serially and collected stool microbiome samples. And they did, um, and, and then they went on to see those infants who developed necrotized enterocolitis here on the left as cases, and those infants that did not develop necrotized enterocolitis. And what you see is on the 
left is there's this bloom or increase in, in red, which is a, a increase in the relative abundance of proteobacteria. These are bacteria such as Klebsiella, Klebsiella, E. coli, and that there was this bloom that was antecedent to the development of NEC that wasn't observed in controls. This was one of the studies that, that also was replicated in other studies that showed that those infants that go on to develop neck, this relative increase might be one of the important features that might be involved in the pathogenesis. And, and other studies and animal models suggest that these increases in proteobacteria might lead to more TLR4-mediated inflammation in the gut and, and go on to lead to inflammation that's, that's really central to the development of intestinal inflammation, central to development of, of neck enteritis. We don't know exactly why this occurs. And I think there's still questions about what, what are the drivers that are leading to these changes in proteobacteria. And, and there are a number of factors that could be at play, including prolonged antibiotic exposure, the types of feedings infants have, or particularly the host characteristics in terms of the gut. And we, we still don't really have a good idea why this occurs. But we do know if there's dysbiosis or an abnormal bacterial colonization, particularly this increased abundance of, of proteobacteria, which we think of in the gut and as, patho as potentially harmful, then, then probiotics are, are really a rational strategy to try to restore potentially this balance or prevent this imbalance from occurring. And, and this is something that has been extensively studied in preterm infants. And so I, I really want to share some of the evidence from studies on probiotic use in preterm infants, because there is a lot of debate. And, and I think when you see some of the claims being made about probiotics in, in children and other populations, there's, there's a healthy amount of skepticism. So I think it's important to step back and, and think about the evidence from, from studies. We're gonna start with really the, the highest level of evidence. And when we think about probiotics, I think it's a nice story in terms of how we think of evidence and the translation of evidence into practice and some of the barriers of that. But starting at the top of this pyramid in blue, where we're looking at systematic reviews and meta-analysis of randomized trials, there's really been a number of them for many years, several dozen meta-analysis of probiotic use in preterm infants. The Cochrane Review in 2014 was one of the first that came out with a strong recommendation for the routine use of probiotics for the prevention of necrotizing enterocolitis, at that time synthesizing 24 trials. And then over the last several years, culminating up until October of last year, an updated Cochrane that now includes 56 trials of the use of probiotics in preterm infants, enrolling over uh, 10,000 infants. So really quite a number of trials where we have a, a large evidence base to, to inform but the, the, the benefits as well as the risks of, of probiotic supplementation. So what do, what do these meta-analysis show? And these, this is synthesized in this figure here on the bottom is the relative risks of the various outcomes, necrotizing enterocolitis on top, all-cause mortality in the middle, and then late onset sepsis on the bottom. We can see is really that, that for the most part, particularly beginning in 20, the meta-analysis in 2016, and, and then the subsequent ones have really showed a fairly consistent result in terms of about a 50 to 40% reduction in the relative risk of necrotizing enterocolitis with prophylactic probiotic supplementation, an important reduction in all-cause mortality. And then more modest, but I think over time, a little bit more precise estimates of reductions in late-onset sepsis with probiotic supplementation. So these meta-analysis and, and, and all of these now show consistent findings that 
probiotic supplementation reduces the risks of, of necrotizing enterocolitis, death, and, and more modestly, potentially sepsis. Now we've known this for a long time. This is not new information. This is a cumulative meta-analysis we did where you take each of these studies and you add on a subsequent study and see how it changes the estimate, beginning with some of the first studies in the 1980s and 1990s, and really beginning in 2005 by a trial by Benun in Israel was the first time we really had a synthesized estimate where you can see it's to the left of that middle line of one that it was a significant reduction in, in necrotized enterocolitis at that time about a 60% relative risk reduction in neck when we looked at that trial and all the data before it. So it's almost been 16 years ago where we had that data. And really since then, we've shifted the estimate in terms of reduction in how much probiotic supplementation reduces neck in these meta-analysis, but not by much. And, and now it, having over 10,000 plus infants in these studies, it's unlikely that these estimates are gonna shift more. So it's been almost 16 years from the first studies we had that showed probiotic supplementation reduces the risk of neck. And for those that follow the, the translational literature, the, there's suggestions that it takes about 17 years for data from studies to be implemented into practice. And this is this I think is goes along with that example. We had a similar story in our field with the use of antenatal corticosteroids and implementation practice. This long lag potentially as more and more evidence accumulates. And there's been a number of trials since 2016, again, that, that allow for a little bit more precise estimation of effect, but really hasn't changed this much. Now, stepping back from the triangle, I think it's better as we think about evidence-based medicine to look at the totality of evidence. And really our goal as scientists and clinicians is to translate science into high quality care. And that starts with preclinical and foundational research, T0, and then and it really moves in a circular fashion through translation to humans and then translation to clinical settings from studies. And then real, real world implementation in, in uh, practice, and finally to populations where we can move the needle on large populations and move the needle on these, these devastating diseases such as necrotizing enterocolitis. So if we go through this translational spectrum, I think it's helpful to look at the data in this way for what we know about the evidence for probiotic supplementation. And we can start with, with preclinical and foundational research. Now I spent my time as a postdoctoral fellow at, at Emory University working in the lab, actually feeding these tiny mouse pups uh, probiotics and assessing how it affected their gut barrier. And, and probiotic supplementation we used, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG, actually accelerated and improved, made the barrier more mature and less leaky. And, and these have been used in a number of studies in, in both uh, mice and, and, and rats to understand how probiotics work. But interestingly, they've also done a number of of models where they supplement probiotics to both the rats on top and mice on the bottom and look for neck-like injury. And what you see, and you don't often see this in the, in the preclinical literature is a meta-analysis of all these studies in these, these, these rodent models where, where probiotic supplementation substantially reduces the risk of neck. And in fact, the relative risk of prolox supplementation on neck-like injuries around 0.5, really pretty consistent, almost spot on what we see in the preterm infants and, and very consistent across these studies when you look at all of these studies in, in these preclinical models, all showing probiotic supplementation reduces neck-like injury are all to the left of this line. 
So I think compelling preclinical data beginning with Mickey Kaplan's study in 1999. And these studies and many others in, in other fields have really highlighted a wide variety of potential mechanisms of why this occurs. I mentioned that probiotic supplementation can improve gut barrier function. It's important in down-regulating intestinal inflammation and it can help produce butyrate, which can bathe the colonocytes and allows for potential competition for nutrients with pathogens. So a wide number of potential mechanisms. These, some of these are gonna be specific to specific um, bacteria. But when we think about that, I think it's, it's important to realize it's not just one or two me potential mechanisms, but likely multiple um, mechanisms that are, that are conferring the health benefits in preterm infants. So if we move from these foundational studies now into the translation to humans and, and how these studies have um, been evaluated in preterm infants, I think I already short, shared with you the data from the meta-analysis and, and there's been such a large number of trials. Whenever I see a large meta-analysis like that, one of the things I'm looking at, as you see on the screen is this vertical line of one, how many of the point estimates are to the left of that line and how many individual trials show a significant effect that's also left to the line. And you can see most of these studies have estimates to the left of the line and a number of individual trials also were indiv individually significant in reducing the risk of, of necrotized enterocolitis. But synthesizing these trials, which, are, which did use a variety of different products, and um, in different populations around the world can, can have some limitations. Even though the, the heterogeneity in these meta-analysis is low, I think it's important to look a little bit more in detail. And, and I've highlighted here two large, two of the largest trials that have been done that have given a little bit of conflicting data on the effect of probiotics and supplementation. The first was the ProPrems trial. This was done in Australia, New Zealand, led by Sue Jacobs. They used a combination product that was comprised of a bifidobacterium um, infantis streptococcus tomophilus and bifidobacterium lactis strain. And the primary aim of this trial was to assess whether giving supplementing probiotics to these very preterm infants reduced the risk of late onset sepsis. And, and they didn't see a reduction, significant reduction in late onset sepsis, although as point estimates consistent with with the meta-analysis I showed before, but they did show a substantial reduction in the risk of, of necrotized enterocolitis, where those infants that were supplemented probiotics had a risk of necrotized enterocolitis of 2% compared to 4.4%, the control group with a relative risk of 0.46. So right in, in line with what we would expect from the data in the meta-analysis. And, and it also suggests that even in a center at this time that had a relatively low risk of necrotized enterocolitis of around 4.4%, they still observed a meaningful reduction in, in the rate of, of NEC. The other large trial, and this was done in the United Kingdom, was a study of a single strain, Bifidobacterium brevae, in a number of hospitals in the United Kingdom. They started the supplementation as soon as possible after randomization. And this was to many of us in the field, a, quite a disappointing study in the fact that they didn't observe a significant reduction in the risk of neck sepsis or death. You can see here in the preterm infants receiving bifidobacterium, they had a rate of neck of 9% compared to 10% in placebo, relative risk of 0.93, still compatible with either potential increase or decrease in neck, but, but not significant in the same findings for sepsis and death. 
one of the interesting things these authors did is they then went on to look at actually what percentage of those infants that were supplemented with the probiotic actually had that organism detectable in the stool at two weeks of age. And if you looked on the left here at the probiotic supplemented infants, the majority, but not all of them had bifidobacterium brevet present in the stool. And about a third of the infants that had placebo also had evidence of, of that probiotic bacteria in the stool. And this raised the potential for cross-colonization in, in units where you're routinely supplementing and you're doing a trial where potentially those infants that are, aren't supplemented are getting the, the bacteria and, and, and getting colonized with them. These investigators went on to do analysis looking at what did the, was there an association between if an infant had bifidobacterium detected in the stool and the risk of, of NEC? And you can see the change in the adjusted risk ratio of 0.868 among those infants where if they had this probiotic bacteria detected in stool, they had a rate of neck of 7% versus 13%. Now this has to be viewed very cautiously. This is not a randomized intervention. There could be other factors that confound this, but I think this does highlight the potential for cross-colonization as a trialist, one of the concerns you always have is about contamination leading, biasing the two trial arms to the null. And that, that is potentially something to be aware of for this trial. Now that's the clinical trial data. And we always wanna think about the trials that are done in very controlled settings and very controlled circumstances. How those effects change when you translate it to routine practice and implement it in real world settings as a measure of effectiveness, um, because they may not always replicate what's, what's observed in clinical trials where there's a very set protocol and a use. And so fortunately for the probiotics, there's a lot of data we have on, on the application in real world settings. This was just published a few weeks ago, which actually looked at a, a review of all non-randomized studies um, that were rated as good quality of probiotic supplementation of preterm infants. And these authors examined 30 non-randomized studies that really enrolled a large number of, of infants, 77,000 infants from 18 countries, where clinicians had looked at the evidence, decided to start routine supplementation of probiotics. And these authors then looked at, at these implementation cohort studies where they could compare the outcomes before probiotic supplementation compared to um, after. And this is the, the meta-analysis of those studies. Again, to the left of this line, it favors probiotic supplementation to the right, it does not. What you can see is that for the majority of, of the studies in these meta-analysis, including some large cohorts, one from the United States and one from Germany, many of these in studies individually showed once clinicians routinely began supplementing probiotics, they had a significant reduction in NEC, but not, not all of them. And actually one of them that I'll share is, was Kane et al. That was our study we published at Emory where we actually saw the opposite, an increase in the risk of neck after probiotic supplementation as well as a couple of others. So here there's a little bit more heterogeneity, which means there's more variability in what centers observed after routine implementation. But overall, when you looked at the data, this was consistent with what you would see in the trials. I think that's highlighted a little bit more in these studies where you have the unique opportunity to, to say, this is the data we saw in randomized trials of probiotic supplementation on the three outcomes we're interested in, necrotizing colitis, death, and late onset sepsis. 
What, what were the estimates of how effective it was in routine implementation studies or observational studies here highlighted by OBS? And, and really they're quite symmetric and, and consistent with each other, which I think strengthens the evidence from the, the data from the trials when you observe the same effect in, in routine studies, although there's more heterogeneity. I think the other aspect of translation to practice putting on my, my quality improvement hat is, is, is when we think about translation of practice, we think in, in kind of a one, unidirectional arrow from evidence generation in studies, in clinical trials, in preclinical studies, and then moving through T3 to translation of practice. And so you go and you generate the evidence and then you implement it. But I think there's an argument to be made about really having this be a bidirectional arrow. Um, of evidence generation and translation to practice. And, and this is, for those that are familiar, the, the really premise of a learning health system. This is what Intermountain Healthcare has been a leader in for many years in Utah, of, of really having this arrow go in both directions. And a learning health system really wants to try to apply the most promising care, the most promising evidence to improve care. So taking what currently exists as the most promising evidence, and then, and then really to implement that evidence into practice, collect data on use and outcomes, and to study that. And you can do that with epidemiology, you can do that with quality improvement tools, and really learn from that implementation and application of evidence to then generate new evidence within your healthcare system and use that new evidence to then inform practice. So this is our experience of probiotic supplementation in our center. This is the statistical process control chart looking by quarter at the incidence of neck. And we had at, at our hospital for many years a challenge, a, a higher incidence of, of neck of around 12 to 13%. And in 2013, this red dot, the first dot above this dotted line, which is an upper control limit, says there was this, this significant important change in the incidence of probiotics and in the incidence of neck at our center that really coalesced our improvement efforts. At that time, looking at the evidence um, and based on what was already on our formulator at our hospital, we began supplementation with, with um, lactobacillus rhamnosus GG routinely in these infants. And, and then we waited for a couple of years and, and studied much like the recommendations in the learn, learning health system, what, what was the effect. And, and we actually did not observe any significant reduction in the risk of, of, of NEC. This is something we reported um, looking both in a more traditional epidemiology approach where before we began probiotic supplementation, our instance of neck was 12%, afterwards was 21%. We saw no difference in blood culture positive sepsis. And importantly, over the, the implementation period, no probiotic associated sepsis cases. But this, this did give us, give us pause where we, we got this new data that suggested in our, in our setting, in our population, we didn't observe a significant impact of probiotic supplementation over enough periods of time where we could at least have some degree of confidence that we, would, we, we should see difference. And then integrating that evidence into practice. At that time we made a decision to stop probiotic use. And, and you may be wondering, well, what, what about all the evidence I, I showed beforehand? And, and I think that's, that's really, important in thinking about a learning health system is you always have to go back 
to the to the highest level of evidence in that pyramid and, and say, okay, let's take a pause and see is, is there something about the product we're using? When we talked a little deeper, what we found is we were using a very um, a powder-based product that infants were intolerating. They were spitting it up often or having emesis. There was um, concern about tube clogging. We also had a relatively high use of antibiotic exposure. And we worked on all, all of those things and, and really made the decision at that time, because we still had this relatively high instance of neck, of changing to a liquid-based probiotic product, one that did have data on effects and that um, we began to supplement. Again, thinking back to what, what the best level of evidence showed. And, and we began that a few years later. It took some convincing and a lot of a lot of discussion of evidence after kind of our earlier experience. And what we, we've observed is really a reduction from our historical baseline to um, a new baseline since the implementation of that and, and meeting kind of special cause statistical process control roles for, for that change. There have been several other studies that looked at similar approaches in terms of quality improvement implementation. This is from the University of Utah, um, Maggie Sikon and Brad Yoder's group, where they implemented probiotic supplementation in October of 2016. And they really had a marked reduction in the, in the rates of that. They went a year without a single case and their rates went from 0.14 per 100 patient days down to 0.02 per 100 patient days. So these types of cohort studies, I think, give additional support to what is observed and what frameworks may be used for implementation. Um, and, and there have been several of these from different centers around the world that highlight the impact when used routinely in the clinical setting on, on the effects of, of NEC. And then finally, I think one of the key aspects of learning health systems is, is really what's at the center of that circle. And that's really patients and families. And, and we, we really want to, to not forget that. And we work, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with the Necrotized Anacolitis Society, which is a nonprofit organization founded by two uh, mothers who lost their babies to NEC. And, and they recently partnered with the International Scientific Association for Probiotics and Prebiotics to really put forward some parent-facing materials about really help, helping educate parents about what ne necrotized enterocolitis is and, and the role potentially of, of probiotics. And I think they've become a stronger and important voice in terms of also having a say in terms of, of, of what's being um, administered. And, and I think this is important as we consider because the few studies that have been out there have suggested most parents would, would want probiotic supplementation for their preterm infants. Then finally, moving the needle to translation to populations. At the end of the day, really our goal is if we're gonna spend the years and the intensity of time and, and, and funding for these preclinical studies and clinical trials and then trans, efforts to translate, what we really wanna do is be able to move the needle on diseases at the population level. And, and we have a number of cohort studies from around the world that's, that show one, the use of probiotics in, in large populations and also the effect that they've had. Now, I've always been surprised at just the variation used from, from different countries. Um, in the United States, about 14% of NICUs are, are routinely using probiotics based on, on data um, from up to 2015. In Canada, about 21% of infants receive probiotic supplementation, 12% of NICUs in the United Kingdom. But then you go farther, more to the east, in Germany, about two-thirds of NICUs routinely use probiotics. And then in, in New Zealand, each of their um, large-level NICUs use probiotics. So really quite some variation. But what these studies also allow you to do is at the population level have these, um, have these countries seen a change with the, the use of probiotics. 
So this was a study that was done, um, just published last year that looked at probiotic use at a number of, of neonatal units in the United States. They studied about 78,000 infants. And over the entire study period from 1997 through 2015, about 4.6% of infants received probiotics. But you can see this, this increase. Um, and, and my impression would be that this is likely to continue to rise in, in US NICUs, that there's an increasing proportion of infants that are receiving uh, probiotics. When they looked from an observational standpoint, um, they found that those infants supplemented with probiotics compared to not had a lower odds of necrotizing enterocolitis as well as a lower odds of death, which is what would be expected based on the data from the clinical trials and meta-analysis I showed. There was a small but significant increase in the risk of candidate infection, and that was something that was new that hasn't been reported before. And, and that is something that raises whether, whether that's because centers that use probiotics had a higher rate of invasive fungal infection or whether there's some association. Um, and I think it's important to pay attention to that, but that was a, a rather small um, change, less than, less than a 1% change. In Canada, in the Canadian Neonatal Network, they found similar findings of probiotic use associated with a lower risk of both neck and death. And similar in, in Germany, uh, in a study of 46 German NICUs, the probiotic use was associated with a lower risk of, of surgical necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a cleaner um, definition than, than medical NEC. And finally, in, in a study of six New Zealand NICUs, they found that even, even though they had a relatively low baseline risk of only 2.7%, that after probiotic implementation in their country, um, it declined to about 1.8%, and that was a significant reduction. So we have these data from a number of centers that not only report the use, but also suggest um, the, these reductions that are consistent with clinical trials. And these are all observational studies. So by themselves, there's always the potential for confounding. But when you think of these in the context of all the other data, the T2 and T3 data, um, I, I think these, again, support the effects observed in, in the clinical trials. So there's all this data and yet only, only a minority of NICUs in the United States are using probiotic supplementation, although I, I think that's increasing. So what are the challenges? And I, I think it's important to highlight this. And I think of these, of course, in terms of as clinicians, we, we try to balance these, these risks and benefits and think about data that supports probiotic use as well as some of the data that does not support routine use. So I'll, I'll go through the data that I think supports routine probiotic supplementation. One, one is there's, a substantial amount of preclinical and human data that support the biological plausibility of, of why probiotic supplementation might reduce necrotizenocolitis and sepsis, which are important causes of death. So in turn would reduce death in, in these preterm infants. There's a large number of randomized trials that show a consistent benefit in reducing the risk of NAC. And, and these are relatively large magnitude reductions in both necrotizing enterocolitis and death. And I think that's important. It's, they're, they're not modest. Um, a 40 to 50% reduction in NEC is an important magnitude of, of reduction. We have a number of implementation cohort studies that support the effectiveness of routine use. Today, at least currently, there's a relatively low cost of supplementation compared to some other therapies we provide. And, and necrotizing enterocolitis is still today a major cause of death in preterm infants. But it's also important to highlight some of the factors that do not support routine probiotic supplementation. And I think the biggest one for a lot of centers is currently there's no regulatory regulator approved drug formulation or FDA approved probiotic in the United States. There's, there's one trial that's um, aiming for, for, for 
achieving that, but it's currently ongoing. And there's also uncertainty about which product to use and which strain, including the dose and how long you should supplement it, things that often go along with what we do in PK studies and dosing studies that, that are lacking. And I, I think if you walk by an aisle in your supermarket, you, you, this is highlighted just by the, the number of different dietary supplements and, and probiotic supplements that are available and trying to choose which one to use. And we recently wrote this editorial last month for a type of analysis that might be helpful for clinicians that are dealing with this uncertainty. Um, and this was an editorial of a network meta-analysis looking at a, a variety of, of different probiotic products where you can actually not make a A to B comparison of just two head-to-head -head trials, but actually synthesize data from many different trials comparing many different probiotic strains, and then looking at the relative efficacy of these different strains for outcomes of interest, such as necrotized enterocolitis and, and death. And a number of different um, network analysis have been done, and I, I anticipate there are likely to be more of these. This is one published last year that looked at, um, at a number of these strains. Now, it's important to remember when you do these types of, of studies that you have to think about the quality of evidence related to these different different strains. And, and so if you pick the, the ones here in dark green that are of higher quality of, of evidence, and you look, you can start to get a sense of what are the potential products and how they might, the relative efficacy of these for outcomes that are important to us, such as all-cause mortality or, or necrotizing endocolitis. And you can see that each of these, looking at the at the odds ratio estimates are all are consistent with important reductions in the risk of neck, maybe some more than others. Um, and, and they're all consistent, although some more precise and some more imprecise with, with potential reductions in all-cause mortality. And I think this is data that can help as clinicians are trying to decide which products to use. It's also important to know that when, when studies have looked at this in a more traditional way, looking at lactobacillus only containing probiotics, bifidobacterium only containing probiotics or combinations, that each of these studies are all consistent with important reductions in MEC. So there may be some that are better than others, but overall the data suggests that each of these different types of products in general have all shown consistent um, reductions in, in the risk of MEC. Now there's also concerns about the product quality and contamination. I think this is, this is a very valid concern and this is some that, that gives some clinicians pause. This was a um, report from the CDC about an infant who was receiving a probiotic su supplement called ABC Dophilus. It's now off the market that then developed a rare um, mold infection, Rhizopus orze, and then, and then subsequently died. And as part of the investigation, the CDC and other health agencies and the hospitals involved went in and, and were able to link the infection in the infant to the probiotic supplemented product, the powder. And this is a single case. There's not been any additional case of this, um, but this is one potential um, concern about, about the quality of these dietary supplements that, that do have some regulation from the government, but it's more um, the manufacturing stringency is not at the level of what a, a pharmaceutical grade probiotic product would have. That's also highlighted by this study by David Mills and, and others out of UC Davis, where they looked at 16 products off the shelf. They pulled a bunch of probiotics. These were all bifidobacteria containing probiotics. And they then looked using both DNA-based methods as well as culture-based techniques 
at how well did what was on the label of these products um, actually match what they were able to culture. And, and they only found one of the 16 products perfectly matched its label and there was variation pill to pill and lot to lot. And, and, and so this is a, a valid potential concern. There is, there is variability in these products. Now, even with this variability, the clinical trials have still shown important reductions in AC. So how, how important is this, this variability and how perfect do, does this need to match? I think it's still unclear, but this just highlights some of the concerns about quality. Then finally, uh, the high number needed to treat for centers with the low incidence of, of, um, of necrotized enterocolitis. And this is important when you think of any prophylactic therapy that you're administering to, to your patients uh, to prevent a disease they don't have. Because it's likely that most infants, if it's a un relatively uncommon disease such as necrotized enterocolitis, that most patients aren't going to benefit from, from that. And this highlights if your center has a baseline neck incidence of 1%, even if you reduce that by half, that means you're going to have to supplement probiotics to 213 infants to prevent one case of NEC. Whereas if you're a center that has a relatively higher incidence of necrotized enterocolitis of 10%, then you'll have to only supplement 21%. And I think this is important as you think about whether where your neck incidence is and whether or not to, um, to use your baseline incidence as one of the factors you use. Now, this being said, centers that have low rates of necrotized enterocolitis have still seen important reductions in the risk of neck. And if you're a parent, your baby either develops NEC or doesn't develop NEC. And so, you're either a one or a zero. And, and, and if this is a devastating disease, even if you have to supplement a large number of infants to prevent one case, is, is that still worth it? And I think these are the types of conversations that centers have and ideally with parent representatives in their, in their NICUs. So when I put all these, this data together and, and really think about the evidence spanning T0, the preclinical data, all the way to the data we have on, on large populations, T4, I think that overall, when I, when I weigh it, and particularly in the light of, of neck being a major cause of death in preterm infants still today, I, I do weigh that currently, I think the data does support routine use of probiotics. I think there's many reasonable clinicians and scientists and some of my colleagues that probably aren't quite there yet. Um, and I think there's, there's, there's room for debate. But Conclusions are that really cumulative evidence demonstrates probiotics given to preterm infants reduces the risks of, of necrotized enterocolitis death and, and more modestly late onset sepsis. And although there's uncertainty regarding the optimal probiotic product you should use and potentially the quality, a number of centers have demonstrated clinically important reductions in neck using various currently available commercial products. And it's important that all many of the therapies we use have risks and benefits. And so there are potential risks of probiotics associated sepsis as well as, as, as potential risks of contamination. And we should consider those that these are really quite uncommon. Um, and, and those risks need to be balanced against the risks that our babies have of, of necrotized enterocolitis death and sepsis. So th thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to present and uh, I'm happy to take any questions you might have. Thank you, uh, Dr. Patel. Hang on one second. I think I have a... This has a volume. In... One, one second, Dr. Patel. All 
All right, we'll move on with the questions. Uh, so the first question is, what is the downside to giving every preterm infant probiotics? That's a, that's a great question. You know, most of these studies that have been done have enrolled preterm infants that are less than 1,500 grams at birth or less than 34 weeks gestation um, or, or, or needing to meet most criteria. As you go up, up to more mature preterm infants that are greater than that in weight, um, the incidence, their risk of neck goes down because the incidence of neck is inversely proportional to gestational age. So you are going to have to supplement more preterm infants and, and the number of your treat will go higher. So I think that's the, the potential downside um, is you might be supplementing lots of infants who are unlikely to benefit and, and considering potentially the cost or, or the, the risks of, of probiotic associated sepsis that, that balance might shift. Great, thank you. Uh, another question is, can you comment on the reported effectiveness of babies under 1,000 grams uh, with the highest NEC risk versus babies between uh, 1,000 and 1,500? Yeah, there's been some debate about whether those babies that are less than 1,000 grams are, um, are less likely to benefit from probiotics. And I think that's... Um, a little bit tricky to in, in the clinical trials. There's, there's not. There are some studies that have been done that have shown important reductions in those babies. When you enroll in trials, you enroll these babies very early on, within a few days of, of, of birth, and and so many of these infants are going to die from respiratory diseases that are not going to be influenced by probiotics. And particularly when you look at the population attributable fraction of net of mortality attributable to neck at 23, 24, 25 weeks gestation that's gonna be smaller because most of those babies are dying from respiratory causes and they're dying early before they can survive to go on to get neck. And I think that makes it harder to, to assess an effect. Whereas a 28 or 28 week gestation infant, the number one cause of death for that infant is gonna be necrotizing colitis. You're, you're likely to see a much clearer evidence of effect in a study when you enroll those infants. And that might be part of the reason why you see this difference in babies that are less than a thousand grams versus thousand to fifteen hundred grams, but I don't think when you look at all the data that there's any 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 convincing evidence that there's heterogeneity that the effect differs between those groups. Great, thank you. Uh, another question is, uh, what are the opportunities to uh, access develop pharmaceutical grade products? Yeah, there's a lot of um, companies that are pursuing this. Um, I was at a FDA NIH symposium a couple of years ago, um, and the FDA has put a regulatory framework for what's called live biotherapeutic products. This, the bar is relatively high in terms of the quality of the product, the manufacturing systems necessary to achieve that. Um, there's only one um, current product that's being pursued through the pathway in preterm infants. There's a number of them that are being pursued for populations, for example, for, um, for use in C. diff colitis and others in, in other populations. And so I do think we'll start to see more pharmaceutical grade products it's unclear what the cost of those might be. Um, the investment to manufacture them at that level required to be um, regulated as a live biotherapeutic product by the FDA, which is essentially a pharmaceutical grade product is, is quite high. Wait, uh, one of our cardiologists asks, uh, what are your thoughts of the use of probiotics in patients with congenital heart disease, such as for patients with ductal dependent physiology requiring systemic to pulmonary artery shunts? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. And we actually hosted, um, the NEC Society hosted an entire session focused on cardiac, on, on neck and cardiac patients. 
partly because we do know that that's another population of term infants that have a higher risk of neck. And some centers, I would say a minority of centers use it. One of the um, challenges and one of the experiences at our center and is one that has used it variably is many of these infants, particularly if they're undergoing surgery, might have a lot of indwelling lines and chest tubes and atrial lines. And, and so we, we've seen a few cases of probiotic associated sepsis in, that pop, in the cardiac population that it's unclear if you know, the risks might be greater. These are very high amounts of bacteria. If the infant spits it up, it, it lands on a site that could potentially lead to, to sepsis. I think that's something that needs to be looked at, but, but uh, there, there are, um, I would say some centers that are using it, just not great data yet about, about how effective it is in the cardiac population. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Wolkoff, one of our neonatologists asks about your baseline incidence of NEC. Um, is it higher than, than normal? And, and, and why did you not see a positive effect on the probiotics? Yeah, that's, that's something we've also been perplexed about. We have, uh, you know, 100% human milk use in our NICU between uh, donor milk and maternal mother's own milk and 0% acid suppression use, um, really all the things that you would, you would expect and yet we see a high incidence of NEC. And I think that is one of the challenges is we don't fully understand what the determinants are. I, I think our incidence might be something more upstream in terms of maternal factors, which we don't often think about that influence the risk of a baby developing NEC and the case mix related to that from maternal hypertensive conditions. That's something we're studying now and looking at. Um, but but it's it's a good question, and I think we still don't have a good idea why why our incidence is high. But even though we had a higher incidence, we did see eventually a reduction with with, with our last effort at, at probiotic supplementation. This one is um, in centers, and I think you alluded to this in your presentation that that have relatively low incidence of NEC. Is there a role for the probiotics in in those centers? I think it's a calculation, and um, you know, one of our centers just across the, uh, across the way, one of our private practice groups in town had an incidence of three percent of neck, and they felt they had, you know, you have one baby who dies in your unit, and it's devastating. That baby is otherwise doing well. I think it does coalesce a certain amount of desire to even prevent those rare those cases, and so that's an argument and discussion for your centers to have about how important it is to try to do, you know, apply the best available evidence to prevent morbidity in your units, even if it's a relatively uncommon. Um, there's no exact threshold for the number needed to treat. I think that's always based on, on the values and kind of the context at, e, at each center. So would it be better to identify, maybe in those low-risk centers, um, would it be better to identify babies with dysbiosis and then treat those with probiotics instead of giving it to uh, to all of them? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. You know, if, the study that I showed earlier from WashU by Barbara Warner and Phil Tarr actually did, um, uh, were interested in if you could look at those babies that have that bloom of gamma proteobacteria and, and quickly culture that and then, and then be more selective. And even in the, and one thing that's been studied years ago is, is actually enteral gentamicin, selective kind of um, treatment of that, um, th that might be an interesting strategy. I think that currently just the, the turnaround time and, and the ability to implement that is not there, but I think it's something definitely um, that's potent, possible in the future. And some companies I know are, are pursuing that strategy to try to uh, use kind of personalized therapies targeted at individual infants uh, 
microbi microbiome profile. Uh, just a practical question for uh, from Dr. Ratson. Since probiotics are not FDA approved, do parents have to give informed consent outside of a clinical trial for their for their use? Yeah, that is um, really up to centers. I would say the majority of centers in the United States do not obtain consent, um, and there's a debate about you know the need for informed consent or not. I think we do a lot of there. We provide a lot of therapies that are not FDA approved for infants. We use them off label um, in neonates and, and we don't obtain consent. So I, I would say the majority of, of centers um, don't, don't obtain consent. There's one survey out of the UK that asked parents whether they felt they should have consent. And, and, and they, the, I think it was over 80% plus didn't feel that there needed to be any consent. Um, we actually, when we started this, discussed this with our hospital legal team about consent. And, um, and, and they also agreed that if, if, based, if there's evidence to support its routine use um, and, and the clinicians and, and staff believe it's, it's, um, it's sufficient, then, then consent would not be needed. One last question from uh, Dr. Hussein. Uh, when do you start and stop probiotics in a preterm infant in your institution? We start with the first feeding and we stop it at 35, when an infant gets to 35 weeks postmenstrual age, which is typically um, around the age at which infants um, are out of the risk window for, for nectaries and colitis. There's some that will develop it later, but that's typically, um, we, we stop it around that time. Great, thank you. There are still a couple more questions, but we're out of time, it's nine o'clock. And I wanna thank you for a, a truly uh, outstanding, very clear presentation. I've, this is probably the best I've seen with, with data, uh, objective and, and with examples. So I really congratulate your work and the way you're approaching this is a very good one. I think our group, uh, I think we have our entire division of neonatology was logged in today, which is really good. And I'm sure they, they learned a lot from your presentation and there are a lot of provocative questions that need to be answered through research. So really, really appreciate it. So thank, thank you for you. participating. Really? Um, I'm not sure if Jim is still on. He, he, he's on service, so he might have had to take it from, uh, from the NICU. Um, Jim, are you still on? He may, I think he's, he had to, he's probably intubating somebody. But <laughs> um, anyway, so again, thank you again. I hope to see you here sometime soon in real life as opposed to the uh, avatar world of uh, COVID-19. And for all of you who joined the Grand Rounds, thank you. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Uh, please stay safe. Have a good day. And we'll see you again on Friday for the uh, Ask the Expert session with Dr. Shriver and company. Take care. Be good. Bye-bye. Thank you.